Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode 105, May 2018. Our guests are playwright Elana Gartner and Rebecca Burton, the membership and contracts manager for the Playwrights Guild of Canada and co-founder of the website Equity in Theatre. Not long ago, I came across a HowlRound.com interview by Ilana on Rebecca concerning gender parity in theater. It's a striking article and highly recommended reading. We decided to ask both women to join us for a discussion of this important subject and started off by laying out the basics of gender parity across the world. So, I mean, gender gender disparity, which is really what we're talking about, um, is... In theater, I mean, it's happening throughout all industries, but, you know, gender disparity is the inequity of men and women um, being employed uh, at, you know, in the, in the industry. And, and a lot of what Rebecca and I have been looking at has been specific um, historically has been specific to playwrights, um, but, but it has now branched out to throughout the entire industry, you know, in design and in, um, directors and, you know, women throughout the industry, um, to see where they are, are, and are not being employed. What have we found as far as this? What's, I mean, how big is the disparity? I'm sure there was... Huge. I mean, it's yeah. it's very. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's huge. I mean, and it varies from country to country. Generally, for for playwrights, we don't internationally. The number does not get. Uh, you know, the the median is do, does not get above twenty five percent for women playwrights. They don't get produced more than twenty five percent of the time regularly. That's insane. Yes. So yeah, I was just gonna say in Canada, we, we're not using the word parity yet. I'm not exactly sure why that is. We're using the word equity, for the most part, um, looking for uh, gender equity. And there's this lovely little Facebook meme poster going around that shows um, a picture of three people watching a baseball game with a fence. And it shows equality. And one person's very short and they can't see over the fence. Uh, the second person can just see over. A third person has no problem. And then they bring out the series of boxes and they show you, like, um, if we were going to be equal, we would all get one box. But the short person still can't see over the fence. <laughs> and the tall person's really tall. And then they talk about equity. And then they move the box from the tall person to the shortest person. And now all three people can see really well. So it's this acknowledgement that sometimes it's not about everybody having the exact same thing, uh, that sometimes different people need different kinds of supports. And so it's sort of recognizing that as well when we talk about gender equity. You also asked how long has this thing on, and I found that to be a really fascinating question because um, I have studied that, and I've gone all the way back to the emergence of amateur theater and professional theater in the new world, and uh, in Canada, women were a huge part of that. In fact, it probably wouldn't have happened without them, but when it became a solidified professional theater industry after the wars um, in the 60s became big business, women got pushed out. And so we have all these stats and we've been tracking through the decades. And it seems like we're a little bit better in Canada right now. Uh, we usually have about 27% of the plays produced in this nation are written by women. Uh, but our marker that we use is 35% because directors, artistic directors, um, all key creative positions of power, women have not cracked the 35% marker yet. Okay. And Canada's doing better, by the way. <laughs> Apparently we are. <laughs> 
Yeah, Canada does better than most of us. Wonder why that is. It seems as though most places are being run by uh, white males, and I guess they're employing a lot of white males and picking plays by white males. What's the struggle like for women to become artistic directors and persons with power of choice? Yeah, well, I think like what you just said is that uh, the studies have shown that like tends to hire like. So if you're a white man, you're probably going to feel most comfortable hiring a white male director and a white male playwright. So and we'll track it back to the boards because it's the boards who hire the artistic directors. And then the artistic directors usually hire the creative team. And then it trickles on down from there. So often if there are a lot of women on the boards, then that increases the chance of a woman being hired as an AD. And then that increases all the other trickle down effects as well. Access to boards seems to be the critical, well, one of the critical goals for women and uh, LGBTQ people to take this disparity and make it into parity. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, it, I mean, it's it's not just that. I mean, I know. Oh that. yeah, it's, I, I know it's not just. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, I know that. Um, in Ireland, for example, you know, last when they had the Waking the Feminist movement that happened a couple of years ago, which was fantastic, mm-hmm. they did not have any female artistic directors in their major um, theaters at the time. And now they have someone who has just started, um, I think she was like last year at the Gate Theater. And she's been, so she's been there for a year and, you know, that's, but that's like a, that's like big news, right? you know, mm-hmm. it's like huge news <laughs> and, and it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be. But, and, and, you know, every time I get an alert about, you know, oh, there's a new female artistic director, like in Washington, DC and, you know, whatever. And it's big news and it shouldn't be big news. No, it should and be normalized. It should be normal, but it's not, yeah. you know. And and it's um, and it and it's it's a big deal. And there's you know there's an organization in um, in the UK called Tonic Theatre that does work from the inside out. And there it's an organization of a lot of other organizations, um, you know, a lot of other theatre companies that sort of commit to making changes for gender equity or gender parity. Um, from the inside out. So they sort of say, we're going to hire people of, you know, different backgrounds and, you know, different gender and stuff like that. And they, they really do make that commitment. And so you do see some changes with, with the organizations that Tonic Theater works with. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's good. But at the same time, that again is a small percentage of the theater companies in the UK. Right. And it is a small percentage of the theater companies in all of the world. Mm-hmm. So you don't see that happening everywhere. You know, if we could replicate tonic theater everywhere, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. 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 Is there a difference? Let's, let's, I just want to go back to the numbers one more time just to, just to see. Um, are there differences between, let's say, bigger cities like uh, uh, New York, Chicago, Toronto, L.A., and what I'm calling the heartland, you know, small regional theaters is, is do you know if there's any kind of is, is the is the disparity less in larger cities? Because I would expect them to be somewhat more progressive. 
You would think it. In Canada, our studies have shown that it's actually not related to geography at all. It's actually related to company size and budget. So we've discovered that the bigger the company is, the more money it has, uh, the worse their track record is for gender equity. So we're finding that the smaller um, independent companies who have the least amount of resources are doing the most work in this area, which is kind of ironic in a flip. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, we, you know, in in Chicago, there was in um in 2013 there was a study by uh that was done by the Chicago Storefront Summit. Oh, sorry, it was in 2010. Um and it found that between 17 and 20% of plays were produced by groups written by women. That's just in Chicago. So that's not even 25%. That's, yeah, then, that's, that's pitiful. And then in uh, Washington, D.C., um, for the 2012 to 2013 season, they did a study, um, and they were at 21%. So, mm. you know, those are... Now, those are both urban areas. I don't think that, you know, you know, more non-urban areas are going to be doing these kinds of studies in the same type of way. If they right. do, I don't really know about it. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Right. What what I will say that I have seen a lot since then, I mean, because these were these were backaways. These were, you know, eight years or five years back. That said, what has been happening a lot that, you know, is like in the D.C. area, they started this huge festival to try to engage more women's voices into their theaters. Um, so there were a bunch of there were like 44 theaters that, you know, pledged to have at least one female playwright on their stage. Mm-hmm. Um, for I believe it was like the month of October for a specific year. It was called the Women's Voices Theater Festival. And I think they've done it a several years now. And I think that um, we were, it was a little unclear whether this was going to be a successful situation or if it was going to be sort of tokenism. I think that it did have some results of raising awareness that there were more women out there who were writing. And then also, you know, there are things like the Kilroy's list in the United States, which have also raised that awareness, you know, that has a full list. They come out with it each year. And Rebecca's doing that too now in Canada. Mm. And that's going to be, you know, hey, everybody says that there's no, there are no women writers out there. Sorry, we can't produce you. And the Kilroy's (laughs) like, Hey, guess what? You're totally wrong. Here are these emerging writers that are awesome and they're women. And all of these super awesome people have said that these plays are significant and should be on stage. And Rebecca's doing the same thing very soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we're calling we're calling ours the surefire list. And for the exact same reason, mm-hmm. uh, 
And now that I work at the Playwrights Guild, I find this interesting because people will always say at first, well, there aren't as many women playwrights as men playwrights. So right there, it's a numbers game. Well, now that I work for the Playwrights Guild, I know that, in fact, that is not true. Women are in the majority of our membership, just by a hair. But uh, it's very, very um, evenly split. So it's kind of odd that the productions don't shake down with an even split. Both of you have done unbelievable amounts of research, and it's taken me the better part of a week to actually go through a lot of what you've sent me and a it's incredibly interesting and b it's unbelievably disheartening we had zakia alexander on here last march and she spoke she's she's from the kilroys and she spoke about this issue as well and it's an it was a very very interesting interview i'd like to move to a different move on to a different topic here for a second i'm looking right now at the 50 50 awards Mm-hmm. from the International Center for Women Playwrights. And right. um, they keep a list of, well, actually, if you could explain that, that would be better. Sure. So when a lot of us, the Emily, when the Emily Glassberg-Sands report came out in 2009 from Princeton, mm-hmm. ICWP, which is our, our sort of our nickname, right. we, we decided that um, we wanted to do some positive advocacy. And what we decided we wanted to do was we decided that we wanted to sort of find those theater companies internationally that were producing women playwrights in at least 50% of a given season and give them an award for it. And just a recognition mm-hmm. for the work that they had done. We'd have done seven rounds. We will be announcing the eighth round at the beginning of June 2018. They will be announcing the recipients. And it's it's really hard work to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because, first of all, you're looking worldwide. Right. Um, we always have a very dedicated, hardworking team of volunteers who does enormous amounts of research. In 2014, we opened up the um, the nominations to the full public. We had actually previously had it just to our members, and we decided to open it up fully to the public in 2014. And that actually allowed us to reach many, many, many more people and many more countries. We translated our press release into French and Spanish. We have like videos of our recipients for several years um, that they sent in for, you know, to do sort of a collaboration, which is actually really cool to see all of these people saying how much they support women's playwrights. The biggest year that we ever, ever had was um, 2016. We had 107 recipients, and that was our fifth year. Um, I'm looking and- through that list right now, and <laughs> the, the amount of research that you've done is just mind-boggling. Yeah, well, we had a nominations form also. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we had a nominations period, but yes, it is. You have to you have to go through, and you have to you have to confirm mm-hmm. that you know everybody qualifies. And but yeah, one hundred and seven. That was a lot. So. <laughs> it was a lot. And the good news is that there were a lot of repeat recipients. That was what was really encouraging. Here, Arts Center here in New York City, um, they I believe were the first people to receive five years running, which was amazing. Wow. I think that that's correct. It might not be. 
There was also uh, the English Theater of Rome, also received it a number of times. And I'm trying to remember, there were whole, yeah, there were several that were that were very, but those two I remember specifically mm-hmm. were big repeats. Yeah, I'm looking at it. You've got uh, what was it? Just scrolled by the Here Arts Center in New York. They've they got it five years in a row. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and the No Theater of Cincinnati's got two. Latino Theater Company in LA's got four. Yeah, yeah so there are definitely. I mean, there are def. And and so when you focus on the positive advocacy and you focus on on who is doing that kind of work, you it it is good to see, and it and it does tend to drive women playwrights to look at those theater companies and say, okay, I should I should send my work to them. You know, they're interested in supporting women playwrights or supporting women artists in any capacity. It, you know, so I, I have, and I have seen, I have seen numbers change in, because I have done all of this research, you know, I've seen the numbers changing in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, Australia has gotten better. It's true. Australia's uh, numbers they, were really good from what I saw. They are now. They weren't always, but they are now. They're a lot better now. They made, I think they made a strong commitment and they, and they, they're also doing a lot of studies to make sure that things are, are changing because they really like to hear Australian voices on their stages. Yes. So that's one of the things that they are also looking at in their in their studies. I'm looking at the, uh, the national voice uh, page right now and it said, uh, of the 58 plays with an Australian-credited playwright, 36 works, which is 62%, were by an Australian female playwright. With the remaining 22 works, 38% by male playwrights. And what year was that? That is 2018. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. great. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's the new one. That's the new one. That's the mm-hmm. one. That, yeah, that was the one I just sent you. Right. And that's very different than, all, than the previous ones that they've had. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what made that very difference? Because uh, it seems like a large jump, and as we know from you know various, you know, ask any activist in the world, and they're going to tell you that progress is incremental, which causes huge amounts of burnout for the people doing it. But if this is such a large jump, any ideas why that may have happened? Well, I have some theories, and Rebecca probably has some theories. I mean, I I think that the the theater outcry around the world is part of it. I think that, you know, the it and it's but it's not just in the theater industry that there's been an outcry, and I think that that's part of it. I think that you know, the the movie and and TV film and industry business. I think that they have been really making loud noises also mm-hmm. you know gina davis has been really loud which has been amazing yep. um and i think that when people who have high profiles make loud noises about certain situations i think it makes a difference it is not a lie that the that the me too movement will have played in because mm-hmm. it's an awareness of what is happening in workplace environments exactly, and, and how women are being held down in positions of authority like artistic director positions or board positions or stuff like that. And if women were in higher authority positions, they might choose different plays or they might choose different designers. So it is... I think that all of these things are factors and components. Mm-hmm. 
that is my opinion. Rebecca may have some additional things to add to that. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to look at the new report yet. Um, and everything that you said, Alana, is totally 100% valid. And I think, too, that this is the kind of situation that, you know, progress, it's slow, it's painful. But this kind of situation is something that you can change overnight, in fact, because it is programming. <laughs> so instead of programming all oh, works by white men, next year they program works by people of color and women and just like that it's changed overnight we see this all the time though so what's going to be interesting to see is if they sustain it because often there'll be like a year of activity where the government gets behind something or the me too movement you know add some fire and there's some change one year and then we go back and we look at the next year and sadly we often see the same regression comes right back so it's like a one-off so I tend not to get too excited until I see something happening consistently over a five-year period so we shall see with Australia um, I want to go back to something you mentioned because uh, you brought up the Me Too and we can't talk about this without getting into that subject as well because they're intrinsically linked so the women that are getting into positions where they haven't gotten into before. And actually, let's talk about all women in theater. I mean, let's just start with women of power. Is it that much more difficult for them to do the same job than it is for a man? Let's say artistic directors, stage designers, um, uh, stage managers, that sort of thing. I think yes and no. <laughs> it's both. I mean, certainly um, we hear a lot of stories from women as directors, especially. Um, if they're directing, oftentimes there are men in the play who won't listen to them, who won't take them seriously, uh, or who make them defend themselves and their viewpoint and the aesthetic that they're going for, so that they have to overly explain everything before they actually get buy-in from their cast. So we hear about that a lot. So that's a, that's a bit of an authority um, problem there for sure. Artistic director level, um, and then it's usually it's dealing with your board. And certainly um, the same kind of gender biases can come up again and again. Um, there's all sorts of studies about business in general. You know, if you're in a room and you're having a meeting and a woman has an idea, it tends to get spoken over and ignored, and then the man will say the idea, and it's a great idea. <laughs> so we we hear a lot of reports about stuff like that as well. Like, you know, as an artistic director, I put this idea forward four times, it was rejected, and then someone else came along and suggested it, and suddenly it was great. But I think there are a lot of um, stumbling blocks like that right now. Yeah. The other thing I should point out, though, is that women dominate the theater industry, <laughs> in terms of pure numbers. So it's the areas where they end up. So tons of women in administration, and you will see um, in Canada anyways, most of our GMs, the general managers, who run all the money and the finances and keep everything together, the majority of them are women. So it's specifically the creative roles. And also when we get into design, all the design fields are really male-dominated, except for costuming, of course, which is then female-dominated. So it's just, it's phenomenal that these traditional gender roles are, are so strong still in the theater industry. That does seem odd. I mean, if, if women mm -hmm. are numerically dominating the field... Logic dictates you would you would expect different uh, different results from that. You also have, I mean, seventy percent of of stage managers are women. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, right there. But it is true that with playwrights, and this has been proven through studies, 
if you submit a script yes. under a male playwright's name, it will be more seriously considered than if you submit the same script under a female playwright's name. Yeah, and that has been that. that has been proven in studies. Mm. It was in the SAMS report. It's been proven in other studies, and it is one of the most shocking things that came out of that study. Actually, it doesn't seem surprising to me at all. Yeah, I, I it was, but the fact that there was that kind of proof that we could yeah. point to and we could say, okay, it is a gender biased industry, right? And now. You have to change it. The 1% of the 25%, you know, writers like Lynn Nada, Jenny Baker, Sarah Rules, uh, Paula Vogel, and the most produced playwright in the U.S., Lauren Gunderson. Yeah. All right. WP member. Yes. Good for her. It seems, well, first of all, that she's the most produced playwright and she's a woman, which going against the conversation we've had in this, the issue the way it is, seems kind of non-logical, but hey, terrific. Um, but these are, these are the small percentage of women whose names we know. And I would say that not everybody knows because we in the industry know these names, but that doesn't mean that somebody walking down the street necessarily knows these names. Let's switch over a little bit. We're talking about equality and we're talking about parity. Is it the same for uh, pay equity? Yeah, so this is Rebecca here. We noticed from our studies that there are differences in pay for men and women, absolutely. But it's not that women are getting paid less to do the same job as men. It tends to be, again, where they're located. So with the higher paying, uh, well-funded companies that pay better, women are um, not well represented. With the smaller indie companies that are really struggling, and usually the artistic director is like subsidizing the theater and there is no salary, we find women in large numbers in those positions. So when we compare economics, women come out way below men, but it's not that they're doing the same job and getting paid different wages. It's more about where they're situated in the industry itself. Let's have you both talk to the current upcoming generation of women theatricals, okay? Uh, everybody from actors to playwrights to aspiring artistic directors. What is your advice? What, what have you learned that you want to pass on to help alleviate this disparity? Well, I think that it's really important for anybody who's going into the theater industry that they study the work of both male and female playwrights and that they find out who are the female role models that they could follow in if they have a specific, you know, if they're a scene, if they're a scenic designer or lighting designer, they, they should find out who are not just male role models, but also female role models. I mean, Julie Taymor is a female director. She came she actually went to my college. She's a great she's a great director. People should be paying attention to the fact that she is one of those people who had the mold. And I don't know who she followed. I don't know if she had, you know, a mentor. But they should look for mentors that will help them figure out how to break through the barriers that still remain. Because there are lots of barriers that still remain. There are still barriers around... Um, parenting duties, there's still barriers around expectations, there's still, you know, all kinds of 
There are all kinds of barriers still, and they will exist. The important thing is to read, read plays by both genders and and by people who are non-binary. Yeah, I would uh, totally agree with that and pick up on it saying that finding a mentor, if you can do that, is so crucial and so key and so important. <laughs> it can really help your career. Um, and not just mentors, but also allies. Uh, people you can align yourself and create networks with and, and you know, opportunities. Because that, that is the major thing we hear about most is the lack of opportunities. So the more people you know, the more mentors you have, the more allies, the more networks, the greater the opportunities will be for you. I would also use that total cliche of uh, be the change you want to see. Like if you see something that offends you that you think should change, then you should absolutely target that. You should try to advocate and fix it. And not to like take on the world, but just one thing, one issue. It's amazing what people can accomplish when they try. Sure. I am, I am reminded of Margaret Mead's quote that says, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. My favorite yes. quote sits over my desk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. It works. It makes a difference. Sometimes you think you're, you're not getting anywhere because, you know, between the slowness of, of the process and the compromises and agendas and all that sort of thing, when you have to work with other people, things can get very slow, but they do happen and they do change. As I mentioned earlier, both of you sent me incredible amounts of, uh, of, of work to look through and, and things, things to uh, see. For our audience, where would you direct them to go find out more about this, find out more information, find out ways to help find you know how they can be the difference you want to see in others. We have something called Equity in Theatre, or EIT for short, and there is a website, equityintheatre.com. And uh, while Equity in Theatre, the group itself, no longer exists, there's lots of great information on the website still. There is a resources page um, that has articles and listings and studies, so you can like look up all the stats for all different countries. And then there are also toolkits and recommendations, so you can um, download stuff like a seven-step guide on how to affect social action and change. <laughs> so that would be one place to look. I would say there are two places that I would recommend. For a history of the gender parity movement, um, I would. there's this fantastic article by Jenny Lynn Bader on HowlRound. It really is extremely comprehensive and it, it goes into like the 1600s. I mean, it's, it's huge. Wow. It's, it's, and it's compre it's very, very comprehensive. I mean, you know, it talks about the first known female playwright, you know, I mean, it's, I would read that article. I would start there. I myself have created because I was having so many articles on gender parity on my website, I decided to create a separate um, page for it on my website. Mm -hmm. So at alanagartner.com, if you go to the links section, there is a, an additional link specifically to articles and uh, stuff for gender parity. And it has articles and studies. I've added some stuff for links to organizations that support women, playwrights, and gender parity. Um, and that, I mean, could be reading for weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Rebecca, do you have a website as well? 
Um, well, I would direct you to the Equity in Theatre website, which I did already, and then the other one um, would be the Playwright Skilled of Canada website under the Women's Caucus section. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find some studies and things like that as well. But I think the Equity in Theatre is the most comprehensive. It also has lists of sister organizations and just, yeah, a whole bunch of stuff. Alana Gartner and uh, Rebecca Burton, thank you so very, very, very much for taking the time to spend with us today. And uh, this, I feel like we've only just scratched the tip of the iceberg. This is a huge, huge issue, and uh, there will be more about it on, on stage, off stage. I can promise you that. Um, thank you for your time, and the best of luck to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey kids, thanks for listening to On Stage Off Stage. On Stage Off Stage is produced monthly and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at On Off Stage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet or know of someone in the theater world, Who'd make some great chat? Please send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Onstage Offstage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender. Onstage Offstage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you.